What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Gray Area Podcast, where I have the conversations people are afraid to have with people they're afraid of. And this conversation is very important, uh, in my opinion, because there's a lot of conversations going on uh, as of as of late about Judaism, Jews, secular Judaism, what do Jews believe? And a lot of people don't understand. And I'm following these conversations, and I, and, and, and I study... Uh, a lot about what Judaism is and I study just like I study a little bit about what Islam is because you have to know what people believe because too many people have conversations of their ignorance and what they're speaking about and I've seen a lot of that uh, regarding, regarding this issue and then I've seen a few people talk to people that are secular Jews or Israelis but not but not Jewish and it's like they're getting information from these people and they think that's the you know they think that that's the uh that's the that's the ultimate truth. And I was watching uh one of my guest videos, and he had talked to a lady, um, who had brought up how she got information from a secular Jew that they were there that Jews were afraid to talk about something, and he sort of laughed and just instantly went into scripture. So, uh, welcome Rabbi Tobia Singer to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, for the people watching. Me, me and Rabbi Singer, we've talked multiple times before. Um, I never invited him on the podcast, but I thought I didn't think he was gonna come on because he's a very busy guy, seems like so. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so I don't know how you want to do it. You want to start off with the banger questions people have? No, I'm gonna start off with this because it seems so simple. I know to you this is gonna seem very simple, but a lot of people do not even understand this. I had to try to explain it to somebody um, on a on a very large podcast. Actually, what is a Jew? Uh, we're a unique people. We're the the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we're a nation, but we're the only group in the world that's also an ethno religious group, which means not only are we the descendants of the patriarchs and matriarchs. But also, we have a faith. Now, not all Jews are loyal to Hashem. Bernie Madoff, he's not one of them, and neither was Karl Marx. But there are Jewish people who are loyal to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the Jewish faith. So we're, we're an ethno-religious group, and God made a covenant with our people. He called upon us to be a light to the nations, and our role is to be loyal to the Torah, to God's commandments, his law, and to um, to have a personal relationship with God based on the Torah, based on the Tanakh. And our we have a promise that we would return back to our homeland, and a promise that there will be an ingathering of the exiles and the coming of a Messiah at the end of days, we are radically monotheistic, which means we believe in one God and one God alone. Nothing created by God is worthy of worship. It's very important. Moreover, most people don't understand why the monotheism is so important. And people think it's just a math issue. It's just like we believe in one God. But why is that so critical? A Jew has to be ready to die rather than worship idols. Because if God is one and only one, then we know a lot about his nature 
he must be filled with love and grace and mercy. Because after all, there's nothing you have or I have that God needs. He's omniscient, omnipotent. He's all-powerful, all-knowing. And therefore, if God created this world, he did it only as an act of altruistic love. And therefore, we know the God to whom we bow, to whom we kneel, to whom we worship, and him alone. And that's what that's the message of Judaism. And that's the that is the uh, the role, the mandate of the people of Israel. So correct correct me if I'm wrong here, but biblically speaking, if I'm not mistaken, um, that the word Jew comes from the tribe of Judah, which is yeah. uh, which was the southern kingdom, which was the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and, and and some of the tribe of of Levi, and then you had the northern kingdom, who was called the tribes of Israel, which were the rest of the twelve tribes, including also. Uh, the tribe of Levi, and um, the the reason that the word Jew is used as a blanket term is because uh, when the Assyrians uh, did their conquests and pretty much attempted to annihilate uh, everyone from the northern kingdom, and then everybody got scattered, so all that was truly left was the tribe of Judah, which is you know Judah, Benjamin, and Levi. That is that pretty accurate. It's very accurate. I just I'm going to roll one piece into this. Absolutely correct. Just to to reiterate that uh, during the Assyrian Empire, the northern kingdom of Israel was carried off, and those are called the ten lost tribes, and the southern kingdom, which was headed by Judah by the Davidic king. In that case, Hezekiah, a very righteous man. Um, so this the the Davidic dynasty and the kingdom of Judah was preserved, and those. Oh, the children of Israel who were loyal to the kingdom of, to the loyal to the southern kingdom were called after Judah. Now, this wasn't just a convenient issue. It really relates to a prophecy in that when Jacob was on his deathbed in Genesis 48, 49, the end of the book of Genesis, each tribe was given a blessing, and Jacob said in chapter 49, verse 8, that all your brothers will praise you, which is always meant to understand that all the tribes will one day be called after the Jews, even if they're not from the tribe of Judah. Let me give you an example. Uh, Mordechai from the book of Esther, he was a Benjamin, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, but he's called an Ish Yehudi, a Jew. The Hebrew language in the Bible is called the language of the Jews. So therefore, the word it wasn't just a convenient issue. It's part of a larger prophecy in that Judah would be the lead tribe. Out of him would come forth, of course, the Davidic dynasty, but all the other tribes will be subordinate to him in that the nation will be known as the Jewish nation. And as you said, of course, when the 10 northern tribes are carried off, everyone who's loyal to the south would have that description. Thank you so much for that explanation. Uh, also, I got to ask this question because I think a lot of people will be shocked by your answer. Um, I, I've watched you talk about, talk about this before. You know, a lot of people have this thing where black people can be Jews and, you know, a lot of people there's an argument about that, but I thought you talk about the, um, I think you were talking about, please correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Jews in Ethiopia had the same bloodline origin that, that you would have, correct? That's correct. In, in Israel, there are many, 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 many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people that are black. I mean, this country has is filled with 
uh, you know, Jewish people that come in all colors. Many rabbis, one of the some of the great rabbis in this country are are, are great men who are who are black. So here it's it's not in America. I don't know how big it is, but here it is. Yeah, and the Ethiopian Jews, the tradition is they come from the tribe of Dan. But regardless, yeah. Yeah, okay, but 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 yeah, you saying they had they come from the one of the twelve tribes. I just thought that'd be interesting because a lot of people think that um Orthodox Jews think that no black person can be a Jew at all or from the tribe of Israel at all by blood. Oh, so no. I thought yeah, yeah so we I, have we have many rabbis, many leaders of communities that are black here in the Holy Land. I'll just say this. I'm not an expert on this because I haven't lived in the United States for a very long time, but in America there is a sense from outside that there that racial tensions is something that is that's a big deal here it isn't people i don't think people really notice that at all there are other issues that we contend with but not not black white awesome all right great i'm glad see this this is the this is why this is why i brought you on this, i know this stuff seems simple to you because i've watched the videos you probably answered these questions so many times but i think with me asking you these questions even though you've answered answered a lot of them i think it um it, it introduces it to a, an entirely new crowd to where the conversation is being just butchered right now, uh, in my opinion. Um, so an, another question I want to get into uh, before I get into questions that I actually have like written down um, is so biblically, you know, when I read the Torah and when I read the prophets, when I read the entire Tanakh, um, what I notice is if somebody basically went against guys rules a lot of times they will be excommunicated and have to be outside of the tent and my question is, is well, well first let me say do, do you know what i'm referring to like in the tanakh where it says people will be excommunicated that could happen they have to go outside the tent for yes. instance numbers chapter 12 yes yes and if you'd like i'll explain a little of that or you can move on with if you want me to just yeah go ahead let me embellish one. So, like, why in the case of someone who is a leper, someone who gets harassed, like uh, Miriam, the sister of Moses and Aaron, like, wh why did that happen? She had to go outside the community. In essence, the person who speaks evil of another, who speaks about someone else behind their back, gossiping, so that person, what do they, why do people speak badly about others? Because of the try, why would someone do that to you? As an example, the reason is because someone is trying to alienate you, to make you a pariah. So the punishment, in the sense, is the re response of that, and the punishment is you sought to have someone else look like they belong outside the camp, that people shouldn't pay attention to them. You, in fact, have to leave the camp. That's usually what would happen. Okay. Okay. Cool. So th was there cases of people being excommunicated? Because they talk about sort of like certain people should be kicked out the land. That's Leviticus 20, I believe, or 18 is, is one or other. Was that certain groups of people should be like, that sort of sounds like, like get them away from the land in a way. Well, Leviticus 18 is about prohibited sexual relationships. Very famous chapter. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of my favorites, personally. But <laughs> but at the yeah. end, it talks about how these people defile the land and they should be removed from the land. Right. That means living in the land of Israel is a privilege. Yeah. As an example, let, let's just go into where we come into contact with this in Genesis chapter 15. God is speaking to Abraham, a blessed memory. And he says to Abraham that your children are going to go into the promised land one day. 
but they can't go there now. And in fact, they're going to be enslaved in Egypt for many centuries. And why, God says, well, because the people who are in the land right now, although they're sinful, they have not sinned to a full measure where they have to be driven out of the land. That's an example that the land of Israel is a very holy place. Where I am, I'm in Jerusalem right now, and the land can't tolerate sin, or there's just so much sin that this land can tolerate. Other lands, different. This is a holy place. So therefore, we see an example there where nations, when they have sinned to a full measure, then they can no longer be in the land, and the Jewish people have been exiled from that this land a number of times. We were exiled First, the 10 northern tribes were exiled during the Assyrian Empire. That's 2,700 years ago. We were exiled during the time of Jeremiah, when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. We returned 70 years later under the Persian Empire, at the command of Cyrus, as prophesied. And we were exiled again during the Roman Empire in the year 70. So if anyone's been kicked out of the land more than anyone else, it's been the Jews. But... The promise is that the nation of Israel would always return and our exile would be temporary. And ultimately, the children of Israel return to the land of Israel. See Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 3. Awesome. Thank you. Okay, now I'm going to get to a lot of questions that uh, a lot of people have. Some of them I find it uh, funny because I already know how you're going to answer them because I watch, I watch videos. And uh, as you know me, you've talked before, I am, I do consider myself a Christian, but I'm not like modern Christians, I don't think. Uh, well, I know I'm not. <laughs> but um, so I'm going to ask a question that a lot of people are asking, even though I've heard you answer before, then I'm going to ask a question that I have. Now, so the question, one of the questions I got is, why are you, I know you already know you heard this before. Why are Jews so afraid to read Isaiah 53? They say they've talked to Jewish people and they do not ever read Isaiah 53. They don't preach it in the temples. It is something that uh, Jews are afraid to speak about, which is Isaiah 53. What is your thoughts on that? So from the Jewish perspective, it's quite the reverse. We find that it is, please, no one take this personally, but generally speaking, we find that Christians are afraid to read anything but Isaiah 53. And what ha and Jews are somehow we we study the whole book of Isaiah, all sixty six chapters. And as it turns out, when I'm on the street and I'm talking to a Christian, and I ask him, like, what does it say in Isaiah fifty two, Isaiah fifty four? No idea. So it's, it's from the Jewish perspective. I know it's reverse. It's it's specifically the entire book of Isaiah that we love. We read it in the original Hebrew, and it seems that Christians have have selective reading. They know this passage in Isaiah 7, that passage in Isaiah 9, that passage in Isaiah 53, and nothing else. One other point should be mentioned. And then we're this, it's a scam. It, it's a scam that Jews don't read the, the Isaiah 53 in the Haftorah. So I need to just explain this to viewers or no one will get what this whole shell game is about. It's three-card Monty, but it needs to be explained. 
in the synagogue on Sabbath, we not only read from a portion of the Torah, which means the five books of Moses, but we also read from a portion of the prophets. But when it comes to the prophets, we only read a very small segment, only about 3% of the prophetic part of the Hebrew Bible is read on the Sabbath, which means the vast majority is not read, including Isaiah 53. Now, what some Christians suggest is that the Jews, we just somehow are afraid of Isaiah 53 because it's not read in the Haftorah. That Haftorah, incidentally, you could see is in the Christian Bible, where we are told that Jesus in the book of Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 18, in a synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath, read from the book of Isaiah. So you see this tradition, which started during the time of Hanukkah, about 2,200 years ago, is in the Christian Bible itself. But the point is, we don't read Isaiah 63. We don't read Isaiah 13, right? So what happens is those who are seeking to attack the Jewish faith peddle in the idea that we just somehow just leave out 53. And for us, we're going like, why don't you guys look it up for yourself? Like, why don't you check out how much of the of the prophets do we read and do we just leave that out? And what someone would discover very quickly is the vast majority of the Hebrew Bible we don't read enough Torah. Isaiah 53 has nothing to do with any portion of the Torah, and that's why we don't read it. But what is done, unfortunately, by some Christians, not all, this is just people who get the stuff from from their pastor Google. You know, if you get your information on Pastor Google, you're in a lot of trouble, just the way it is. So what happens is, is that people read this on the internet and then they repeat it, they regurgitate it because it fits into their into their worldview, into their 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 the way and they are ah, the Jews are into some sort of conspiracy where we're hiding a passage of the Bible. In fact, Jews don't do that. It's quite the reverse. We read all of the book of Isaiah not just Isaiah 7, 9, and 53. So when I watched the video of you responding to the lady, <laughs> I finally you started like quoting some of Isaiah 53 in Hebrew. Like, I know Isaiah 53. Trust me, we don't we don't hide from it. And I found mm -hmm. uh, and, and I felt like she was sort of shocked. Um like like uh, like matter of fact, can you quote a part of Isaiah 53 right now in Hebrew? I just wanna, you know. Sure. That's Isaiah 53, verse 1. Like, who would have believed their report? And look to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed. Let me, let me just say this. If it's Christians are good people, I'm not patronizing them. But what's happening is they're not taught the Bible in its original language. And therefore, they are reliant, they are enslaved by the translator. That's really the deal. The deal is that Christian schools can each easily teach their students the language that God used to communicate to the prophets. Hebrew, biblical Hebrew is an easy language, simple, concise, small, 8,800 words. That's the whole biblical Hebrew. They could do it. They don't. So therefore, every Christian has to use a ZNIV or King James Version, and they fight over which is the better one. And she was going, are you insane? Like, why don't you want to read the original language? Moreover, 
God created the world through the Hebrew language, Psalm 33, verse 6. Like, why would you want to be kissing God through a towel? Every translation is a commentary. Like, what would go through your mind to rely on 47 men in England during the 17th century who rendered the Bible into the English language, into Jacobian English? Like, why don't you just teach your kids Hebrew? It's, it's so logical, but yet... Christians don't do that. There are hundreds, there are thousands of Christian schools in America, thousands. None of them teach children Hebrew. They teach them Latin, Spanish, French. Great. Why not Hebrew if they believe that Hebrew is the holy language? And they do. So, you know, look, this is my native language, Hebrew. It's not, you know. It, it, this is simple for Jewish kids because we teach our children Hebrew. I mean, this is these are this is the first native language. Yeah, yeah, I'm currently in the process of trying to learn Hebrew. Like, I I know words. I don't know how to like pronounce them properly. But I mean, when you study, when you study the Bible, you sort of have to go back to the Hebrew language or the New Testament. You sort of have to go back to the Greek, um, because sometimes the translators sort of try to like add a little something to it that wasn't necessarily there. Now, a few questions that. I have that uh I, I haven't seen you talk about it on um on on, on your YouTube page, but I want to talk about Psalm 5 5, Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. And I think I've e emailed you about this, right? Because the Hebrew says hate. That, that's what it says. It just says hate. And then it talks about it Psalms and other places it says hate. But every time I I bring this up, you know, I get thrashed by Christians. <laughs> I get, I get thrashed by the majority of uh, minor Christians because uh, they they say that God will never hate anyone. Um, but when I look up the Hebrew, it's like that's what it. I mean, it seems like that's what it say. I don't, you know. So Bob was as a native Hebrew speaker, biblical Hebrew speaker. Also, what what is your views on things like Psalm five five? Is the word there actually hate? Yes. Or what's, what's going yes. on? Yes. 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 Son Nasa. You hate Paul Evan, those who are peddlers in sin. I mean, it's, look, the book of Malachi, like Jacob, I love Esau, I hated. It's 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 there. Look, this is the problem. The problem is this is insanity, really, because Hebrew is such an easy language. If we encounter an English word that we've never read before, which happens. We don't, we're not even sure how to pronounce it, let alone what it means. In Hebrew, it, there's only one possible pronunciation if you have the vowels with it. It's only one way. So, yes. So, it's it, the text ends with sonesa kol poale oven. You hate all those who are workers in iniquity. Of course it says that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, there, there it goes. So, I can't wait to, for people to watch this. And I guess... I guess they'll still try to argue with you and say you got the Hebrew wrong. I I, I don't I don't know. Uh, also, um, one uh, another one of my questions is, I have these conversations all the times, all the time with with Christians about keeping the commandments because I, I think you you know this, but I I try to keep I keep the commandments, um, the ones we can't keep because there's no temples and things and things of that nature. Uh, but and one of the things I use is I always ask people like, did God change his mind? Because in Numbers, I believe it says God, God, God does not change. And then, and the verse I bring up is Deuteronomy twenty nine, the last verse in Deuteronomy twenty nine. Uh, it says uh, the Torah is for us and our children to observe forever, right. ever. 
And so my question is, am I confused about that? Is is the word actually forever? You know, it doesn't actually mean everlasting or what's happening there. Yeah, of course it says, I mean, that's it's a beautiful passage. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. And that which has been revealed belongs to us and to our children. Forever. So that we may we may fulfill, keep all the words of this law. It's like really, it's right there. Look. The Bible could not have been written just for people with high IQs. I mean, salvation has to be accessible to everyone. If you have doctrines that are so complicated that you need a master's degree in theology in order to understand it, then, then that's not the Word of God. The, the thing about the Torah is that anyone can understand it. Little kids can understand the stories in the book of Genesis. They may not understand every, maybe questions people have, but this the Torah is written in a way that anyone can understand. I mean, it's such simple language. So the answer is the Torah is forever. Now, it doesn't apply to all people at all times. Just as an example, there are laws in the United States that apply to if you can't see very well. If you have poor vision and you want to operate a motor vehicle, you got to be wearing your glasses, right? You can't, right? Now, let's say you have perfect 20-20 vision. Okay? So there's a law in the books to operate a motor vehicle and you have whatever, whatever, just bad vision. Okay, So you can't do that, right? So that law doesn't apply to you. It doesn't mean you don't believe in it or fulfill it. It just doesn't apply to you. Twenty twenty vision. So there are laws that apply to men that don't apply to women and, and vice versa. There are laws that apply to a thief. A thief has to return something you stole. If you didn't steal anything, you can't fulfill the myth of Hashavah Saveda returning what or or returning that which has been stolen, right? So yes, yeah, so we all the Torah is our life. Look, the the Torah, the law is what gives us life. It makes Torah Hashem Tamima. Let me talk, let's talk the language of God. Torah Hashem Tamima, the Torah of God is perfect. Mishivas Nofesh, it restores the soul. Edus Hashem Ne'amona, the testimony of God is trustworthy. Machimas Pesi, it makes the foolish one wise. Psalm, Psalm 19. I mean, don't you want to fall in love with God? It's gorgeous. I mean, of course it's simple. Yeah, I was some people, um, James too. James called the law of God perfect, but people, you know, they have all kinds of ways around that. So I, I do want to ask one more question for me before I get, because I do want to go back to Genesis. Um, and it's a question that every, a lot of people have. But um, Daniel seven, right? Hmm. Uh, Daniel seven is a prophecy, and to me, it seems like an end times prophecy in the way I view it, because I'm a Christian, I believe in Revelation, I believe in Matthew twenty four. I view it as a prophecy of what I would call you know, the Antichrist of some sort. Um, but in Daniel 7, even the way to view it from a Orthodox Jewish perspective, I, I, I sort of want to get to Daniel 7, 25, because it seems like it's saying the beast or the, you know, yeah, I, I think it says beast, even in the Hebrew, the beast will be arrogant and attempt to change God's time and his law. And I wonder how is that because I don't think I've heard you speak about this specific thing either on your channel. Right. So Daniel seven is the uh Daniel seven is just one of the most ecstatic chapters 
in all of the Bible, and apparently the writers of the New Testament thought so, because one of those passages is quoted more frequently in the Christian Bible than just about any other. Um, well, let's think about what institution changed the times and the laws, altered it. There's, It's the final kingdom, the one that blasphemes God. There are four kingdoms that are enemies of God and sought to, and subjugated the Jewish people. The, we know about Babylon, Persia, Greece. We lived under all three of those, but then there's Rome, the fourth Edom, the worst of all. Edom is Asaph. And in fact, we have entire books in the Bible devoted to telling us about the destruction of this morphic nation that would subjugate our people, the nation of Israel. And here's what happens. What would Christendom seek to do? Change the times, meaning Jewish festivals no longer. Uh, when we celebrate, even when Easter is celebrated. You know, at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the church changed Easter from celebrating on Passover to celebrating on a time that is connected to the vernal equinox. How, how did you change that? And the laws. You don't have to keep the laws any longer. Now, I want to be very careful with this. Christians do not teach that you can murder or or steal or commit adultery. I I'm not I'm talking about that. I'm talking about ritual law, meaning antinomian. Don't have to keep the ritual law. Let no one tell you about keeping the Sabbath, the holidays, what you eat, what you drink, because this is Colossians chapter two, verse sixteen. Because the because the law is only a shadow, and the essence is Christ. Right. So it's very important. Hebrews ten, verse one. Now, if you're a Christian, I hope I don't offend you, but I'm just giving this straight here. So what we have is that final empire, that final nation that would subjugate the Jewish people, two things they would do. They would change the times, abandon the Jewish calendar. That's what happened in Nicaea. And number two is abandon the Torah means that you don't have to keep the law anymore. Christ fulfilled the law for you. Now, there are Christians, I should say, who don't believe that, because I don't want your viewers to misunderstand this. There are Christians that believe that the laws of the Torah must be kept by every Christian. So I want to, so I want to, but th that's, um, that's an outlier. The vast majority of Christians would say, you're not under the old covenant anymore. You're not under the, no, we're under a new covenant. You don't have to keep any laws. So I want to be clear, because I don't want, you, the viewer, to misunderstand what I'm saying here. So this is Christendom, what the church did, what Rome did. And of course, it's something that we reject, but this is the final enemy. For those who don't know, I just want to just quickly, I Daniel chapter 7 outlines all the four kingdoms. So this is very much in context. You have the four kingdoms represented by the lion, by the bear, by the leopard, four heads, that's Greece, of course. And then finally, the last kingdom with the... Uh, Ten horns and the little horn, which is that's what Daniel seven is about. And then the Messiah comes, one like a son of man comes at the end of days to comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancient of days. That's the Messiah, and so on. And then Daniel now is revisiting that very last kingdom, which Daniel's asking the angel, What is that? So Daniel is most troubled, not by the first three, but by that last one. What is that? That's what troubled Daniel so. So I want to make sure we're reading the, this chapter in context and what's happening here in this section of one of the most ecstatic, numinous chapters in all of the Hebrew Bible. 
Thank you for that. Um, I am one of those Christians that believe we should keep the commandments. Uh, me personally, because of Second Peter three sixteen, I think a lot of people are taking Paul out of context. But you know, that, that's that that's a longer conversation. But I do want to also before Genesis, because you said something about old covenant and new covenants, and I I try to tell multiple people this: there there are multiple covenants even in the Tanakh, but covenants don't just get rid of old covenants or covenants that came before it. it am i mistaken how i'm viewing that right so you believe i i we've never had this conversation straight out so i'm going to guess and if i'm wrong just stop me you believe there are different dispensations which means different epochs where god interacted in terms of salvation so there's an John Nelson Darby saw this as seven different epics, but it do, here's what's key for you, and you probably do this better than I can, is that you don't believe that anything that we find in the New Testament cancels out anything in the Hebrew Bible. The, all the laws of the Torah are permanent, and I'm assuming we don't we didn't have this conversation that you would cite the Sermon of the Mount, meaning Matthew five seventeen. Yes, that's right. So there you go. How do I know that? Well, I know that. So I'm, I'm just <laughs> guessing. Uh, praise the Lord. Okay. So it's not that I'm mind reading, but you look at these passages like Matthew 5, 17. It's very important because that's the Sermon of the Mount where Jesus, we are told, says that he didn't come to change. Don't think that I've come to change the law, but to fill it. And anyone who changes one jot to the law be considered least in the kingdom of heaven, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, yeah. then, you know, so, so what you, now, are do most do Christians struggle with it? You better believe they do, because they don't know what to do with other passages, in, you know, like Colossians and Hebrews ten and so on. But absolutely, a, a the Christian scholars fight over this a lot, and there's reason for it. So even with Matthew five seven, literally, I was having this debate last night <clears throat> because nobody can answer the question, and it's because right before he says, "Not one dollar tittle," it says, "Until heaven and earth pass," and it's 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 a verse I've talked to scholars, I've talked to anybody, nobody can answer it. Uh, one try to say heaven and earth pass, but even when Jesus rose on the third day, and you, I, I understand that you know the New Testament scriptures too. Jesus still tells you heaven and earth has to pass, and in Revelation twenty one it actually passed. So no Christian, modern Christian that I've talked to can can actually truly answer the question yeah. of the Sermon on the Mount, and I and I I, I know it like verbatim by heart. I know a lot of scriptures. By heart, obviously not as much as you because you got years on me. Um, but so my question is now I, I wanna, with Genesis. Can I for a moment? I apologize. Go ahead. Just, Go ahead. I, I need to make this statement or else people are going to be very confused. Um, <clears throat> any a claim that's fantastic requires fantastic evidence. Okay. I've never talked this way because I am people normally ask me about Christianity, which I am typically I'm very critical of. But here I'm gonna I need to make this point. When Christians are asserting that you don't have to keep the law any longer, you know how fantastic that claim is? You need fantastic evidence for a claim like that. And what Christians then come up with is stuff, not all Christians, I'm thinking those who are antinomian, they come up with with inferences that are very strange that are very odd you need very clear passages right, right so it's very clear what's happening in the sermon on the mount okay jesus we are told is saying that the law cannot pass away never pass don't even think it for a moment okay 
If you want to upend that, you can't start going with, you know, heaven and earth pass away. You can't use the bar is very high, very high. And that's how you get involved in a cult. What cults do is they subvert the plain meaning of the text in favor of some very some inference that's and that's how all the cults operate so i would just submit to people that regardless of whether you're jewish or christian or muslim you have to use a basic rule of hermeneutics and then you won't get in trouble there are passages in the bible i'm just using that word in the bible that are very easy to understand we know exactly what it's talking about when the bible says don't eat pork we know what that means okay now, if you if you have other passages in the Bible that are not clear, that are in the dark, are a little nebulous, what exactly is meant there? So here's the rule. The rule of hermeneutics is we always use passages that are in the light to interpret passages that are in the dark, not the other way around. And the way people get themselves in trouble is they use these inferences to prove the Trinity, as an example. The Trinity... Do you know how much evidence you need to prove the doctrine of the Trinity, the hypostatic union? That requires a very—you can't just go, well, Tom said, my Lord, my God. That's not enough. You can't use a fake passage from 1 John 5, 7. You can't use the Great Commission of Matthew 28. You need mind-blowing evidence. So again, the according, you have to tweak your evidence according to the claim. The claim is so strong— so clear, you can't use some odd, in and that's why people get themselves in trouble. It's not lining up. They're, you're taking a very strong, clear statement that's unambiguous, and you're taking some ambiguous passage to overthrow that? Go back home. That's not how things work. You need clear passages in order to make such a strong statement. That should help people. Speaking of that, that's going to be amongst my questions. We're going to go back to that a little bit. Uh, my Genesis questions, but my my first my first question for Genesis uh about Genesis, because I don't know how Orthodox Jews do this, and I study, I study Orthodox Judaism a lot. How how do do you view the world was done in seven days? Do you view it literally? Because I heard somewhere that um Orthodox Jews don't view it literally, because I guess you know how to. The Bible says something like a, a day is a thousand years, something like that. How do y'all view right. the time? Well, let me lay this off. This is really, really simple. The answer is, of course, we take it literally. Of course we do. But there's one caveat, okay? And that is we just don't have access to one piece of information. That is, how long was a day? Now, this is not weird stuff. Let me explain. The first thing God created was what? Light. Okay, that was the first vayhi or, and there was light. That's the first day. When was the sun created? On day four. Okay, so what governed darkness and light? Vayhi er vayivoke. It was dark. It was light on the first day. We don't know. The Bible's silent on this. We simply have no access to what that primordial light was. Now we. Until the 20th century, it was people wondered why did God create light before anything else? Why didn't he wait till the fourth day? God doesn't need light, but actually, in a sense, he does. Meaning, we know that from the early 20th century of Einstein that light and time are intimately connected. Without light, you can't have time. When God created light, time is set into motion. And therefore, 
when we talk about the world being 5,783 years, we're not speaking, we're not discussing, we're not describing uh, from the first day of creation, but from when Adam was created. So Orthodox Jews are creationists, of course, but we just have no access to how long those first six days were. They might have been 24 hours. It The science doesn't point in that direction, but it's not relevant to us. What is only relevant is when was Adam and Eve created? When was our first parents created. That's it. We just don't know how long those first... It's not a metaphor. It's none of that stuff. It's just that it's very clear that it wasn't the sun that was creating the life for the first four days, so we just don't know. We don't know how long those days were. That's all. Nothing metaphoric oh. about it. All right, awesome. Um, Second question about Genesis is um, <clears throat> so you have Genesis 126, which is a modern Christian favorite, but then right after you have Genesis 127, which for some reason it seems like a lot of Christians don't necessarily quote as much. Um, So in Genesis 126, it says uh, made in our image, but then right. in, in 127 it says my image. So what? what who is the our? Right. In, 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 in the Orthodox Jew view. Why don't we do this? I'd like to ask, what does the Bible think? I mean, let's just look at the Torah and and, and do it that way. So the, as it turns out in Genesis one we're not told who God is speaking to when he says, our bitsalmenu. So let's, let's think this through and let's line it up with Scripture. Man is made is composed of two things. We're not only composed of the dust of the earth, the clay of the earth, but we're also the spirit of God is in us. He breathed it in us. The stuff that angels are made of, we're made of. We are the only creation that is binary. So therefore, when God is speaking, he's speaking to who? Who would be have both the clay and the the metaphysical stuff that's divine? Only the angels. And therefore, God is speaking to the angel. Let us make man in our image. Now, how do you know that's true? Because we have three places right in this neighborhood of the Bible where God is saying our means it doesn't end here. We can go a little bit later to Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. I'm going to say that again. Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Context. Adam and Eve sinned. They have to go outside of the Garden of Eden. And who? A angels. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm going to shut that off. It's okay. Angels. Angels are told that they have to use swords to prevent, to block man from ever coming back into the Garden of Eden, lest he'll become like one of us. Hello, right there again. Moreover, there's one other attempt where man might try to achieve divinity, and that's in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7. What is man doing in Genesis 11? He is building the Tower of Babel. For what purpose? He's trying to rise up to heaven to make a name for himself, and God says, let us go down to confound their knowledge. You know what GPS is? It's a triangulation. That's what's happening here in Genesis. We actually have three places. It's only three places in the Bible. We have that hour, and God is speaking to angels. The point of the hours that man is not divine, that he's not God, but man is creating the image of God. That's the nature of him. See Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. And therefore, we have a divine spark, whatever that means. Every human being is creating the image of God. There's a, Your dog isn't. 
You may love your dog, but your dog is not creating the image of God. We have the tension because we're both, we we're, we're what animals are made of. Like if you have a dog, you understand them. He wants to, he wants to eat. He wants to be safe. He wants to be loved. He wants to be fed. He wants to have babies. It all makes sense to us, but no dog ever believed in God. No creature ever believed in God, only mankind. So we are therefore binary. We're different than anything else. And therefore, when God comes to man, he says, let us. And it's for that reason that it's for that reason that God doesn't say let us in any other passage. When God's creating fish, he doesn't say let us make fish, doesn't say let us make animals let us make the start only man is us if after all there are more than one god if there's a hypostatic union then why isn't us used other places only for man as i say triangulate your passages okay also what i want to ask is how do you view which one should i ask first i guess i guess satan right because i think i think there's a, a big difference between the way christians and Orthodox Jews view Satan. If I'm not mistaken, y'all sort of view him as an employee of God yes. in a way. I know that I know that wording is atrocious, but yeah, no, it's perfect. That? Well, I love it. That's perfect. He does exactly what God intended him to do, and that's to provide free will. Without Satan, we'd have no free will. We would just want to worship God. There would be no virtue. God says, look, it's not my words, God says, before you, I have placed good and evil, life and death. All right. Well, what does that mean, God? put evil, created evil in Isaiah 45 or 7. I, I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. I don't care what translation you use. Satan, and in the book of Job, where we have the most, the most uh, detailed description of Satan, Satan comes to God. Okay, I don't care what Bible you use. Satan comes to God about a man named Job. This is the oldest book in the Bible chronologically. And Satan makes the case, says, there's this fellow named Job, and he has everything, and he's righteous. And perhaps if he didn't have all that stuff, perhaps he wouldn't be loyal to you, and maybe he would curse you. And God says to Satan, okay, this is what you can do, and this is what you can't do. Okay, You can take everything away, but you can't take, you can't take his life. And what does Satan do? Satan does exactly what God tells him to do. So Satan's job is to cast forth blandishments to seduce, so we have free will. If Satan did not exist, no one would ever want to sin. No one. It would be too obvious to us. It, it's not that we can't sin, but it's like we, I like to cook. So when I'm in the kitchen, I don't stick my hand in the fire. Why? Because I know what the consequences are. Satan is there to seduce, to accuse, but we can resist those blandishments. But Satan is never in rebellion against God. You will find that in Revelation 13. You will find that in some places, but not in the Hebrew Bible. Satan does whatever God tells him to. Okay, and then the next obvious question is, how do Jews view hell? I know that's extremely different than Christians. As a matter of fact, I watched a video yesterday, and there was an Orthodox rabbi, I forgot his name, and he said that the way they view it is someplace that everybody has to go through before they get to the kingdom. I don't know, it was something, something very interesting. Right, okay, so let me, let's sort this all out. First point, full disclosure. The afterlife is almost never mentioned in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, It's a big threat in other religions, but not in Judaism. Why? Not because it doesn't work. It works really well. There's a problem, and that is you can't check it out. It's inaccessible. God talks in the Hebrew Bible in the following way. If you sin, it's just going to stop raining. 
So if you're really God, you can really make it stop raining. If you're not God and making it up, you're going to say you're going to go to hell. And it's, well, the problem is it's unfalsifiable. It'll scare people. Many people believe in whatever religion they believe in because they don't want to go to hell. They want to go to heaven. But you have no way of testing it out. You see, So the Hebrew Bible says you're just going to go into exile. You're going to come back. So it's uh, first point is heaven and hell are very rarely mentioned because we don't have access to it. Number two, when whatever heaven and hell is, it's a spiritual state, right? We don't have eyes. Our body is decays in the ground with the exception of our bones, which are waiting for the resurrection. So you can describe it. We what would you use? Because we know the world through our senses. What we see here, our eyes are not going to be in heaven. Our ears are not going to be there. Okay, so all that said, there are some veiled references, and in none of those references is it a threat. In the Hebrew Bible, it's not a threat. In the Hebrew Bible, it says, it's just heaven tells there's the resurrection of the dead, Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. You do have, now, you do have one passage in the Bible in Isaiah 22, verse 19, which tells us that a person's sins can be forgiven after death. It's only one passage. And so what I think that rabbi might have been referring to, I don't know, I can't speak for him, is that there are people who die who are basically good people, but they, they may have a sin that has to be addressed. So Gehenim could then uh, uh, pardon, could in some way could cleanse away, could purge away that sin. No doubt the Catholics stole it from us, what they called purgatory. So that's your only passage for it. There are people who die who have repented of their sin and go right into the presence of God and go to heaven. There are very evil people in the world. There are really bad people in the world, in case your viewers haven't noticed it. <laughs> and there is a hell waiting for them. There are the enemies of God. There's a, Jeffrey Dahmer's in hell. I assure you of that. So, uh oh, uh oh, that's what that's what stirred up the Christians. You know, you know, Christians they Jeffrey Dahmer repented and went to heaven. Yeah. So, so Adolf Hitler, he's got a roommate, Adolf Hitler, right? The guy, the man who killed nearly 3,000 Americans on 9-11. You remember that day and so do I. Um, we know there's, that man will be destroyed for what he's done forever. But as it turns out, some people are have repent of their sins before they die. Now, no one knows when our last day is. No one knows when our last hour is. So it's important to repent today. But those a person who repents, their sins are forgiven and they're with Hashem. But there is a hell, but it's a mistake to try to describe hell in any physical terms because our nervous system is not with us after we die. Now, there is a full bodily resurrection resurrection where the where the body is reconstituted i mean that's why bones remain why are bones still why don't bones decay because the bones are waiting to reproduce the body so when the body is resurrected we'll be able to feel sense smell so whatever hell is it's a very real place but don't think about it in fire pain those things are not whatever it is it's a separation from god we don't know what it is because we can't we don't have access to that kind of information but whatever it is it's not a good thing and one should remain loyal to god ideally because you love god not because you're afraid of going to hell right ideally you would be loyal to hashem because you adore him but there is a separation from god that we know about in scripture okay and i'm, I'm gonna get to a few like questions i don't want to keep you too long so i want to get to um 
some questions that other people had. One, um, and I told people this is here my thing, right? Somebody asked the question of why do Orthodox Jews call out secular Jews? And I say, well, they do. And I thought about how I talked to you before and you flat out called out George Soros. I mean, it wasn't on camera. I mean, it wasn't on camera. It was just me and you talking. Like, and I'm thinking like, they do. And then, and then you know, so, so like, what is your response to that? Because, you know, people say some secular Jews do bad things. And in my mind, I'm like, well, I think a lot of Orthodox Jews, they, they give them a bad name. But but uh, what is their view of that? Right. So, no. Uh, Karl Marx doesn't give me a bad name because Karl Marx was an enemy of God, was a an enemy of the faith of Israel. Um, Freud, Freud was an enemy of God, detested the faith of Israel. These are my spiritual enemies. Now they may have ancestors that were Jewish. In those cases, they were Soros. This is this is these are people who are the enemies of my faith. These are the implacable enemies of my faith. I got news for you, Christopher Hitchens. In Jewish law, he was Jewish, but you wouldn't call him Jewish. Sam Harris is an atheist. He happens to be of Jewish ancestry, so the, the, of course I want people to repent. But these people are not. Their faith is not Jewish. They they oppose the Jewish faith, so they're not. Jewish in faith. They just happen to be connected. It means they have a, a grandfather who was Jewish, who was loyal to God, but they themselves are not loyal to God. So, of, of course, they're not. They're opponents of the Jewish faith. Of course. Awesome. Be beautiful answer. I hope people listen to that. Okay, now, this next one is something that everybody wanted me to ask. It has been going around the internet. You, you probably heard of it, probably not. Um, a lot of uh, people on YouTube, I'm not going to say their names, because I'm actually friends with a few of them, um, but I keep up with news all over, so sometimes I know things are fake news before it even spreads. There's a, a popular thing going on that says Jews in Israel have found their Messiah. And, and, and there's a video, I don't know if you heard of it, if you haven't heard of it, I can like try to send you the article, but the, the, it's a it's a video of people um, crowd, crowding around a young rabbi and Christians are saying they're basically saying he's the Messiah. Have you heard of finding the Messiah? Yeah, but I hear it all from Christians. It means in the religious Jewish world, no one's saying that. Now, let me explain this thing. Okay. If you have, he, this person is a, a prodigy, he's a brilliant sage, brilliant. Okay. The man is very young and he's here in the Holy Land, as there are thousands of brilliant rabbis, but some of them are just extraordinary, just off the charts brilliant. So there are people who hope in every generation that perhaps one of these people who we know may be the Mashiach. Maybe someone thinks that way. I've never heard a Jew say that. I'm not saying it isn't. I just never heard of such a thing. But in the Christian world, whoa. In the Christian world, this is the Antichrist all over the place. Now, people asking about this, and it's like, what? I've never heard any Jewish person say that. I'm not saying that someone said it, and I just, you know, I, I just wasn't in the room at the time. This is very much, I think, a, a, a Christian thing where there's the Antichrist. Now, people might go, what's the Antichrist? So the Antichrist is, is mentioned by name in First John. It's, mentioned, it's in Second Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, that there's some pretender to be the Messiah who the Jews will worship. And it'll turn out to be Satan. Okay, that's not biblical. That's not in the Hebrew Bible. 
There's nothing like that. But I think this whole thing is going on, is amping up on the internet. The internet is very valuable because you can study like we're studying now, but it also, it's like a knife. It can be useful, but also could be used to destroy. And all kinds of silly fake news could be uh, um, spread in the internet. I think that's what's going on. Okay, I have, I have, I have, I have three more questions, and this is the this might be the last one that me and you talked about before I ask you like questions that I have personally that I think will end end it off perfectly. So of course everybody wants to know if uh, Jewish people view Gentiles as less than, um, and if you wanted to address that, you can. The reason why the Jews are here is to take care of non-Jews. That's our whole purpose. It's not only that we're not we're not greater than non-Jews. We're here to facilitate the salvation of non-Jews. At the end of days, Zechariah 8.23, if you're a Christian, that's your Bible. It says, 10 Gentiles of different languages will grab the knaf Yehudi, the hem of a Jew. Yehudi, Jew, it says there. And they'll say, let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. Hello. The role of the Jew is to be able to relate to the nations of the world about the oneness of God. Heaven forbid that the Jews are going to the non-Jews to learn about God. That's where everyone gets into trouble. The role of the Jew is to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 42, verse 6, a covenant nation, God's servant, and to be an or lagoyim. Isaiah 49, verse 6, the role of the Jew is to do essentially what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Now, most Jews, unfortunately, have abandoned that role because they're too busy in Hollywood making movies, because they're too busy in uh, in Wall Street making money. That Forget that. That's not Judaism. The role of Judaism is to teach Torah and to be a light to the nations. That's our entire role. So it's not just that not the Jews are Gentiles are not second-class citizens. It's just the opposite. Our whole raison d'etre, a mandate in the Bible, is to be a kingdom of priests. Mamleches Kahan v'goy Kadosh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Well, if we're supposed to be priests, who is our? Who are the people we're preaching to? The answer is to the non-Jewish world. We want to raise up the non-Jewish world. And in fact, Isaiah 60, arise and shine for your light has come. The nations of the world will go by your light. So let's go to the Bible. It's very, very clear. But there is, of course, people who don't like Jews. I know you never heard of such an idea, but there are <laughs> such people. I know there's a whole new concept that someone who doesn't like a Jew, you go, what? I never heard of such a thing in my whole life. There should be any non-Jew who doesn't like it. But this is new. This is the new news off the press that there is somebody they found, an Eskimo who doesn't like Jews. Ah, what could you do? Not ever got. There are people who don't like the Jewish people, and therefore they come up with all these conspiracy theories about the Jews, and that the Jews hate the Gentiles, and we could cheat the Gentiles, and we could lie, whatever, all this nonsense. All this is to be able to convey uh, something that is opposed by the God of Israel. We're here to facilitate the light to the world. That's the whole purpose. Um, also, just just to clear this up before I get to the question, um, I heard a few people say that uh, Orthodox Jewish people view the Talmud as the word of God and equal to the Torah, and that is not true. Am I correct in saying that? It's, it's a little tricky because it's a very different kind of book. It's more than 70 books. Talmud is the largest book of eight, but it is not a book like the Torah. But it provides us critical information about how to understand the Torah. Let, let me now, if 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 you speak Hebrew, when you do, you'll understand what I'm talking about. 
Hebrew itself is a consonant language. The vowels are not there. Now, you see vowels when you look at a printed Bible because that was put in by Mesorites. Like, what vowels go on the letters? How do you pronounce a word? Well, without the oral Torah, we have no idea. Uh, the Torah says you should slaughter an animal in the manner that I have shown you. It doesn't tell us that's Deuteronomy 12, 21. Bible doesn't tell us how to slaughter an animal in the manner I've shown you. I mean, look, in the Christian Bible, when we're told Jesus says the Pharisees sit in the, sit in the seat of Moses, he wasn't joking. It means the what is the oral Torah is directly from God and how to observe it. So the Talmud is a different kind of book because all the commandments are in the five books of Moses. No one adds a new commandment. But how do we perform them? How do we make tefillin phylacteries? You know, think to yourself, like, how do you even, I'll let you the question. Like, how do you know that the book of Song of Songs is the word of God? Like, how do you know? Because you said earlier you believe in Tanakh, right? Mm -hmm. well, well, how do you know what books are in Tanakh? What is the source? I don't think even uh, historians know how the books of the Tanakh came together. You know, Christians whatever it did, you. but you believe it. It's in the Talmud. The yeah. Talmud lines oh. up the canon. Like the Book of Song of Songs, I selected very carefully. Why? Because it's not even quoted in the Christian Bible. Okay, so it means all Christians believe that the Book of Song of Songs, as an example, is the Word of God. Without yeah. what their only source for it is. Tractate Bava Basra, 50, 40, page 14 and 15, where the entire canon is laid out, its authorship and everything. So Christians sometimes go, we don't believe in the Talmud, or Talmud is not the word of God, or it's not like that. What are you talking about? Christians rely completely on the Talmud, on the oral Torah, to know what books are in the canon, what books are out of the canon. And many books, about 10 books of the Hebrew Bible, are not quoted in the Christian Bible. What's your source for it? It's only the Talmud. I know Christians find that crazy and insane, but I don't blame them because they're taught this, and then they just believe it, that the Talmud... So the Talmud is giving us the details. Torah is saying, follow the prophets. But who are the prophets? Who are not the prophets? What are we, Is the book of Maccabees the word of God? Is it not the word of God? Like, how do you know? Like the deuterocanonical books that the Catholic Church believes in, why don't you believe in them? Because the Talmud says don't believe in them. It's really... It's really that simple. So, but to be clear, do you view the Talmud as the word of God? As a holy book. The Talmud contains in it discussions among the sages. Now, you have to understand why this is important. The Torah says that you have to have a court system, Deuteronomy 17, right? And you have to have a lot of judges, and that they're going to vote, right? And you go after the majority, right? So it's not like the Jews invented this idea that there are sages, rabbis, whatever, judges. Mm -hmm. I mean, my gosh, Exodus 21 and 22, you bring your question to the judges. Well, what are they using? So they can disagree with each other, but ultimately a court has a majority rule. So the Talmud is a, does record the discussions and not only the majority rule, which what we follow, but what was the minority rule? What's the dissension? So Talmud contains all of that information. So it's very different than the Tanakh, which is in a sense dogmatic. The Talmud records a lot of information that's so helpful to us. Think about this for a moment. The Bible says, let me just give you an, an example. The Bible says that uh, in Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, that a Moabite can never join the nation of Israel. Very simple, okay? Now, as it turns out, King David had a great-grandmother. Her name was Ruth. Who was Ruth? She was a Moabite. 
How did she produce the King, King David and the Messiah? Well, without the oral Torah, you would not know that Deuteronomy 23, verse 3, is applies only to men who are Moabites and not women. So Christians, without realizing it, depend completely on the oral tradition of the Jewish people. Now, they're not taught this in Christian school. They're not taught this in church because they don't realize what's happening. But they're utterly relying on the oral tradition of the Jewish people. But because the internet is full of all kinds of silly things, they don't realize that. And unfortunately, Christians are not taught that. But the only way Ruth could become a part of the children of Israel, could be the matriarch, could be the grandmother of the Messiah, is because of the Talmud. Otherwise, she is banned based on Deuteronomy 23. I'm giving you a very simple example so that anyone can understand it. Okay, and now I have I have two more questions, maybe three. But with this question here is obviously, like I said before, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and I believe in the second coming. Obviously, you don't. Uh, the question that all everybody wants to know, even though I've seen you answer, like I've seen you answer this question so much, I can answer it for you if I had if I had to. Why don't you take um, over? <laughs> the question that you know, the whole thing. Go ahead. This you know, I was banned. I was primarily banned on Twitter. Uh, a few days really? ago, yeah, which is sad because I couldn't promote that I was doing this. I could like ask people what would they what would they want to know, and I had got unbanned yesterday, so I was like, okay, let me ask it. And this was obviously number one because a lot. Here's the thing: the truth is, a lot of people um, live in. I'm not saying this in a totally negative way, but a lot of people live in bubbles, which means they don't they don't even know the basics of, 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 of something else. You know what I'm saying? Even though Judaism seems so tied to Christianity, they don't even know the basics really of Judaism. So the, the number one question is why don't Jews believe in Jesus Christ? I never heard that before. No one ever <laughs> asked me that. I, holy smokes. <laughs> uh, well, the reason is because if you're a Christian, please don't be offended. Because there's no relationship between what the Messiah is supposed to do in the Hebrew Bible and what Jesus did. And so it, it's the opposite. I mean, the role of what does the Bible say about the Messiah? When he comes, he's going the world's going to change dramatically. There's going to be world peace. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn of war anymore. That's Isaiah chapter 2, right? Um, the, the Isaiah chapter 2, for some reason, is never quoted in the Christian Bible. Why? It's on the Isaiah wall across from the United Nations. It should be there, right? They'll take the swords and turn to, and the swords and the spears turn to plowshares and pruning hooks. Not there. The ingathering of the exiles, the nation of Israel returned back to the land of Israel. A temple will be built in Jerusalem. Ezekiel 37, verse 26 through 28. The whole, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel are devoted to that. The coming of Elijah the prophet before the great and day of the Lord. That's how the book of Malachi ends. Christians should know that's the, the end of the Bible. The the the, the lamb together with the light together the world, the knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea. Isaiah 11 verse 9, um, the book of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14. So all the, the resurrection of the dead, Isaiah 26 verse 19, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. So what happens is that people are just not reading their Hebrew Bible, and rather they're they're more familiar with the Christian Bible, and they're sort of reading the Christian Bible into the Hebrew Bible, and that's where I think people get themselves in trouble. It's not personal, it's just there's no relationship between 
what Jesus did and what the Messiah is supposed to do. Messiah is not supposed to go around doing miracles. I'm not saying he won't. He might. For some reason, Tanakh in the Hebrew Bible is no mention of him healing blind people. None of this stuff. All that, none of that. So dying for the sins of the world, you know, I'll tell you this. Whether you're very conservative on 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 social justice, on justice, you know, just, you believe in capital punishment, you don't believe in it, whatever it is. But I think it's important to, no matter who your audience is, like you really would like that only the bad people who did the deed, they go to jail and they're punished in whatever you think that punishment should be. And I think you want innocent people to be exonerated, right? I mean, that's, I think in any country, that's what we would want. It's so logical. We want justice. Very simple. That means that innocent people don't um, do time for wicked people. That's in the Bible, Ezekiel 18. The, the innocent cannot die for the sins of the wicked. The idea that the Messiah is supposed to die for sins that he never committed but someone else committed, we wouldn't want that. We, in a society that did that it operated that way, it's criminal justice operated that way, we would not respect. Well, God's more merciful than any of us. So, right, the idea of the Messiah is supposed to rise on the third day from the grave. There's nothing like that. When Paul says that, that it says that in Scripture in First, in First Corinthians chapter 15, in the first four passages, and he says, according to the Scripture, well, there is no Scripture. It doesn't exist. And this is also quoted at the end of Luke 24, 46. There is no Bible. There's no verse like it. These are phantom verses. So the reason it's not, Jews are not anti-Christian. It is true that Christians have driven us crazy over the years. It's true that some Christians have made our lives miserable, but it isn't personal. It's just, we have the Hebrew Bible. We follow it. We look at the very clear text. And then what we encounter in Christianity in terms of Jesus, it bears no relationship to what the Messiah is supposed to do as per Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. It's really that simple. Okay, so my my, my response to that is, um, but you do agree that just because something is not said um, blatantly in the Torah as far as the Messiah, meaning, like you said, it, you said he may heal people, it just doesn't say in the Torah. Sure. Um, you agree that the that is possible for the Messiah to do those things, though. For right? sure. Of course. It's just obviously not important to the Tanakh. It, it's possible he will. The Torah tells us he'll give hechacha, which means rebuke to the nations. See Zechariah 9, verse 10, Isaiah 2, 3, and 4. It's, it's somehow not there. And in fact, in Luke 4, 16 through 18, the author of Luke interpolated, he'll heal the blind. It's not in its corollary passage in Isaiah 61, verse 1. Wait, how did that happen? So, it, no, it's not in there. It doesn't mean he won't do it. And that is very clear. The reason why Judaism doesn't accept the Christian Messiah has nothing to do with Jesus performing miracles or the claim that he did. That's not the issue. The point is, the emphasis in the Gospels is that he was a, a, a miracle worker, that he died for the sins of the world willingly, and that he rose on the third day. If that's not what the belief in, and if you believe in him, you're saved, and if you don't believe in him, you're going to go to hell, Mark 16, 16. I'm not making this up. I'm not setting up a straw man. This is the foundation of all, every iteration of Christianity. Well, we're then going to the Hebrew Bible and going, 
there's nothing remotely resembling that besides not supposed to die for anyone's sins. No one could die for anybody's sins. There's no passage about him resurrecting the dead. He might do miracles, but as far as the Hebrew Bible is concerned, that's not important. The Messiah is rather going to rebuke the nations, and as a result, the nations will disarm take their implements of war and turn them into implements of agriculture. And what is going on in Ukraine today and in the Middle East today will come to an end. Okay. My my, my last question is a question that I'm going to ask everybody that I, that I bring on here that's prominent in, in, in their religion is if, if you had to say one thing to somebody that doesn't believe in God, what would it be? How would you tell somebody to to show them that God is is definitely real? Yeah. So, what I would I think there's a reason why some ninety percent of the world's population, higher than that, believes in a higher power, believe in God. More than half of the world believes that the Torah is the word of God. I'm not kidding. It's insane. If someone says they don't believe, I would, I'm a rabbi, I would ask, what's hurting you? What's breaking you? Why don't you trust authority? Who's hurt you? I mean, the Torah was given through a national revelation. But in truth, my viewers are not atheists. I don't think so. The vast majority of them are Jews, Muslims, Christians. But I would say, like, like Why? Because, I mean, look at the marvel, the wonder of just a mother. She has a baby. She could feed that baby. Like, how, how did that happen? Like, she has to be able to have eat a potato and milk comes out, and the baby has to suck. I mean, when you see that organization world, you know that God is filled with love. His organization, the Torah, is... Um, it was given through a national revelation. Every holiday on the Jewish calendar uh, marks a national event in Jewish history. I'd say to everyone, choose to be chosen. That would be the message. But I'll be I'll tell you this. I like to listen, not to talk. And I would rather listen to why I would say, why don't you believe in God? And I, I'd want to know that. Because it's not not the natural default baseline. The natural default is to be aware, uh, to intuitively be aware that there's a God. Intuitively be aware, because we're creating the image of God. So that's what I would do. I, I, I wouldn't come out it aggressively. I would just I would just ask, like, why? Like, how did you, would you always feel that way? Had you? And very often, you know, people are disappointed by adults. Very often, people are hurt. We've all been hurt by people who were supposed to protect us. And what happens then is sometimes, I'm saying always, but very frequently, when people start to question authority, it means if my dad was wrong about this, about what he did to my mom, so so maybe all authority is nonsense, right? And that's what I think, that's what I think might be happening. Because it doesn't I've never been an atheist for a second. I mean, it just makes no sense to me at all. So I'm I withdraw and just ask the question, like, why? Like, why not? Tell me more about you. That's what I would do. Well, Rabbi Singer, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I would have a million more questions to ask you, but I know you're probably busy and not have a lot of stuff to do. I have to fly out. I've only been home four days. I got to fly back out in two. Uh, <laughs> um, thank you so much. I really did this thank to try you. to create some try to create some understanding of what Judaism is. Um and try to try to debunk 
or confirm some of the things people believed about Judaism and, and questions they should ask. And I decided to go to a, a, a good source of somebody that is you are a literal Jewish rabbi in Israel. So, so I think I think there's no better source than that. So thank you so much. And if possible, I would love to have you on again. I loved that. And one other thing I would like to do is that is that I hope that you will visit this land and we will get together in Jerusalem and we can be here in this very the eternal city together. I, I really would look forward to that. God bless I you and thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. And I plan I plan to come out there one of these days. And when I come out there, I will contact you. <laughs> you got my contact. We're gonna do that. I look forward to it, brother. God bless you. Thank you so much.